turn with me to Acts chapter. We're going to be looking at the tail end of chapter 11 and the tail end of chapter 12 this morning. Before we uh, jump in, let us just take a moment and pray and ask that the Lord would indeed open our eyes this morning in order that we may behold him in his word. Would you just bow with me in prayer for as we begin this morning? Oh, Lord in heaven, we just say thank you for the gift of your son, for sending Jesus to be born as one of us, to live life exactly as we have lived it, to face every temptation that we have faced, and yet, Lord, to conquer over all, to be tempted yet without sin, and to go to the cross in our place, to make atonement for our souls, to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins in order that we might be set free. Lord, we just praise your holy name this morning. As we look in your word, Father, we pray that you would show us the greatness of the friendship that we have with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer into that friendship, closer to you and closer to one another. We pray that you'd illuminate the text this morning, that you would show us the joy and the value of this friendship, and that your spirit would convict us to begin walking closer and closer with each other as we strive closer and closer to you. We pray you do that by your spirit through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. My daughter uh, is learning to, to read. And what's interesting is that she has learned to tell time very quickly whereas she has struggled to read. And the reason that she learned to tell time first is because in order to help her learn to read, her mother and I would say to her, you have to read for 10 minutes. And she so hated learning to read that she learned very quickly how to follow the clock and to figure out when 10 minutes had passed so she could be done with her reading. And so we just said, thank you, Lord. I mean, one way or another, she's learning something. Amen? Well, she actually, something interesting happened this last week, which really pleased us. She was reading by force, as is the way it is with all learning sometimes. You just, by force, you're just going to have to do this. And so she just sat down and she read. And we had told her on many occasions that once she learned to read, and she learned to read well, that an entire world would be opened up to her, that she would discover personalities and characters and interesting events and things would happen in these books that she was reading that would really engage her attention. Of course, she didn't believe any of it. She didn't trust us for any of it. It was just a laborious, torturous exercise that she was forced to go through, and so she went through with it. And this last week, something interesting happened in which she stopped having read. We, we put on her a 20-minute time limit. You have to read for at least 20 minutes, and so, and so she did. And she read, and she read, and she read, and she stopped, and she looked at the clock, and her eyes got really wide, and she came running up to me, and she said, Dad, do you know how long I've been reading? And I did know how long she had been reading. She said, I've been reading for 40 minutes. And I said, isn't that something? She's like, yeah. I said, why, why do you think that happened? And she said, well, I don't know. Something weird just happened. I started to read, and it got really interesting, and then I just kept going. And I said, didn't I tell you that this would happen? And she's like, yes. <laughs> and, of course, she then says to me, well, 40 minutes has passed. That's two 20-minute time slots. <laughs> you think I could get out of my 20 minutes tomorrow since I did 40 today? And, of course, 
you just know that's just where they're going with their thought process. No, absolutely not, Olive. The reason why I mentioned that to you this morning is that I think it can be that way for many of us in the Christian life. We have been promised that there is joy in a relationship with God. And we've been told that if we would draw closer to the Lord, we would experience the blessings of that friendship, we would know more of the Lord, and we would be more satisfied. And so then, of course, we are told there are these things we have to do, these means of grace or spiritual disciplines, as they're sometimes referred to. There are certain activities we engage in, certain things we go forth with, And if we will do these things, we'll discover at some point in time that we are drawing closer to the Lord, that he seems more real, that his presence is more clearly felt. And of course, we we were told this, and so we jump into these spiritual disciplines. We're we're told we have to have a morning quiet time, and so we get up, and we read our Bible, and we pray, and we do all these things. And I fear that what happens for many of us is that somehow we get stuck in this rhythm where it becomes all about doing the quiet time for a prescribed number of minutes, and rather than just losing ourselves with the Lord, we are keeping one eye on the clock, and we're counting time, and we find as we go through life, we're never actually drawing closer in our friendship with the Lord, and very quickly what can happen is that uh, our, our walk with Christ becomes something of... Uh, an exercise, a a daily ritual, but it's not life-giving. It's not breathing joy and excitement into us. It becomes perfunctory. Now, I draw your attention to that this morning because as we have seen in Acts chapter 12, while there are many things that could be described, that could be said about the events that take place in Acts chapter 12, the one adjective we could never say is that as these disciples were walking with Christ, their walk was, if anything, nothing It was not perfunctory. It was anything but perfunctory. They saw the supernatural hand of God operating in their lives, and they took joy in the friendship that they had with each other as they drew closer in their friendship with God. This passage, Acts chapter 12, and the bookends on both sides of it, are all about friendship and walking in friendship. You say, Pastor, I didn't see that anywhere. I know. I'm, I'm going to draw your attention to it this morning and help you to see it. If you go back, if you'll recall, at the tail end of Acts chapter 11, verse 27, it says, In these days, and Pastor Ryan preached on this three weeks ago, four weeks ago, it says, In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Okay? And uh, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now, right off the hop, the church in Antioch has concern for the church in Jerusalem. They use the term brothers. We're going to help our brothers in Jerusalem. There's this term of endearment. There's this idea that they're about to go through a hard time and we're going to do what we can to help them. And so they purpose to gather together some relief, and they're going to send it by the hand of Barnabas, who's mentioned first, and then Saul, who has yet to take the Gentile, the Greek name, Paul. You jump down to the end of chapter 12, and it says in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul, going back to these guys now, They returned from Jerusalem, that is, they they went back to the church at Antioch, 
when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And most scholars will refer to him, the abbreviation there is John Mark. We'll call him John Mark to distinguish him from the Apostle John. So you have the Apostle John and you have John Mark. Now these are two bookends, if you will, two endpoints, a starting point, an introduction point, and then a conclusion, bookends to the central story. And the central story is that in Jerusalem at this time, not only are they going to be experiencing famine, not only there's going to be material hardship, but more than this, they're experiencing persecution. Obviously, there is Wonderful results that are coming about as a result of the preaching of God's word. Herod doesn't like it. As we've seen, he, he arrests the apostles, he kills James, he throws Peter into prison. And what we have in Acts chapter 12 is two sides of the same father working for his people. On the one hand, he works to bring about the deliverance of Peter. His chains miraculously fall off. Peter is restored to the church of Jerusalem. He goes and he meets them in the house and they're so blown away they don't believe it's him. On the one hand, God is working to deliver his people. And then on the other hand, God is working to protect his people by striking down Herod, who is threatening them. So on the one hand, you have salvation, you have deliverance. And on the other, you have judgment, you have wrath executed on behalf of his people to keep them safe. That's the central story. And we always draw into the central story because that's the main point. The main point is that God cares for his church, that he is working on their behalf. But as we draw into that, don't miss the bookends. The bookends are another church recognizes that a sister church is struggling and about to struggle. And they send help. They send food. They send money. They can't do anything about a brother being executed, and another brother being thrown into jail. They didn't even come for that purpose. They came in order to provide for the famine, in order to take care of their physical needs. And as they came to do that, they saw the supernatural work of God also caring for his people. They observed that taking place, and then the conclusion of the story is that the word of God increased and multiplied, and these guys went home, but they didn't go home empty-handed. They went home with another friend. Did you notice that? It says there in verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied, and then in verse 25, Barnabas and Saul, having completed their service, they went home, and they took with them, look at this, John, whose other name was Mark. They didn't go home, just the two of them. They took a third friend along for the ride. So from start to finish, we see friendship happening here. Even at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, you see friendship happening. In verse 1, it says, At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, notice this, James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it had pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. If you know anything about the ministry of Christ, you know that he was friends with the 12, but even within the 12, there were three whom he was particularly close with, John, John and James, who were brothers, and Peter. Now these three are very close with each other. So what you have, if you're looking for these references to friendship all throughout Acts chapter 12, it starts off with the church in Antioch concerned for their friends in Jerusalem. They arrive, there's these really close friends in Jerusalem. One gets executed, another gets imprisoned, eventually delivered. And then it concludes with friends returning to Antioch, taking an extra friend with them. 
Now, what are we to draw out of all of this? For these guys, walking with Christ in the first century was not merely a matter of getting alone in their prayer closet and praying and reading their Bible. It was a matter of friendship, drawing closer to the Lord and drawing closer to each other. That's exactly what we see here. When we look at this passage, we see people who are saying, hey, those guys are hurting. We need to go help them. That's what friendship is. When we go there, we see that there are friends who are being separated from each other, and God works to save them. God works for his church. He is their friend. And then when it's time for Barnabas and Saul to go home, they go home with an extra friend. It wasn't simply a matter of prayer. It wasn't simply a matter of getting alone and being pious and having devotion. It was a matter of doing. But it wasn't a matter of duty. It was a matter of doing for the sake of love. It was a matter of friendship. And we live in a day and age in which it is quite common for people to think that they don't need friends. A number of years ago, I was at a Bible camp uh, for teenagers, and the presenter was giving a talk on friendship, and he posed the question, he said to the group of teenagers so gathered, he said, how many of you would consider yourselves here today loners? And of course, there's this one group in the back corner of the room where they all raise their hand. And he says, I see all of you back there in that group raising your hand, saying that you're loners. And they all shook their head yes. He says, are you guys here together as a group? And they all shook their head yes. (laughs) And he kind of smiled and he looked down at his Bible. And then he said, okay, we're just going to move on. And the rest of the room got it, but they didn't get it. They were loners together. We may like to think we're alone, but you'll notice even when people strive to be alone, they're alone together. We're meant for relationships. This is the reality of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam, whom he has just created, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, this relates directly to the creation of Eve, who's going to be his helpmate, but it speaks generally to the nature of all of us, all who are created in the image of God, that it is not good for us to be alone. The story of the fall is that man sins against God, and as a result of that, the relationships which he was intended to enjoy are now broken. Within the curse that is given in Genesis chapter 3, it is very clear that that relationship between husband and wife is now fractured. They're going to be against each other. And of course, they are in opposition to God. They are now separated from God. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ comes in order to reconcile relationships in order to make us friends again. Christ is our example. His ministry was centered in deep friendships. If you ever go through and look at the apostles and do an in-depth character dive on who these guys were, all of them, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, are from the same part of the world. And many of them are close friends with others and are even brothers with each other. It is clear that Jesus placed a premium on friendships and close relationships when he called forth his 12 apostles. And even more than this, he says in John chapter 15, love has none greater than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus considers the apostles his friends. So being a Christian 
first and foremost, we need to understand, is about having a friendship, being in a relationship with God through Christ as a result of what he has done on the church, on the cross. And as a result of that, it brings us into friendship with his body, which is the church. God becomes our father. And as a result of him being our father, we become brothers and sisters. In fact, the warning that is given in Hebrews chapter 10, do not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. That is, it was and is a call to relationships and friendships that is gathering together with other believers. So friendship is not optional. But when we say friendship, what exactly do we mean? The text tells us it's about, first and foremost, mutuality. That is, you are concerned for what happens to these people just as much as you are concerned what happens to you. We see this from the church in Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. They get word by means of prophecy that there's going to be a famine that comes on the world. They think to themselves, we have this knowledge that God has given to us. We are able to anticipate now what is coming. But what about those guys in Jerusalem? We have no idea whether or not God has spoken to them prophetically the same way he has spoken to us. And so they get together. Their first thought is not, hey, let's make sure we all have our our prepper buckets full of food and grain and rice tucked away in our closet or under our stairs. Their first thought is, what about those guys? And so they put together money and they send it down. There is this concern that what happens in Jerusalem, what happens to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem is just as important as what happens to them there in Antioch. The greatest example of friendship that we see in terms of this mutuality, this being concerned for one another's well-being, is found obviously in the friendship of David and Jonathan. One of the key texts in that story talks about the mutuality that they had between the two of them. The description is given that Jonathan loved David as his own Soul, And it goes on to say that his soul was knit together with David. Literally, what this is saying is that the soul of Jonathan was bound up or, or knit or weaved in a way that it was bound to the soul of David. This isn't to say that somehow there was a spiritual, a special spiritual connection that was going on there that defies ordinary friendships. It is to say that they discovered in each other that they had the same passions, that they had the same drives, the same pursuits. Jonathan looked at David and he saw a man after God's own heart and Jonathan had that same passion as well. And this mutual regard for the same things is what brought them together. It is spiritual, it is supernatural, but it doesn't have to be uncommon amongst us. It says in that, in that book of, of 1 Samuel that where they went, they were inseparable Jonathan saw that David viewed life from the same divine perspective as he did. And this is the way it ought to be with deep friendships among us here. Uh, If we stop to think about it, in Christ, we have an awful lot in common, an awful lot that should lend itself to a mutuality between us. We all assent to the same authority. We all look to the same God. We all know and worship the same God. We all recognize that because of our faith in Christ, we're going to the same place when we die. We're going the same direction. We ought to be longing for the same things as well as a result of that relationship. Dreaming the same dreams, obviously yearning and longing for the same experience 
of seeing God face to face. When we die and go to heaven, you will meet a lot of people there. And this much I can guarantee you, you will not meet one that you don't like. Let me say that again. When you go to heaven, you're going to meet a lot of people there. And you will not meet one whom you don't like. Now look around the room. You see, God is doing something. Because if we're willing to be honest with ourselves here in this room, I think we can all agree that as we look around the room, there are people that we get along with better than we get along with others. There are people that we're closer to here in this room than we are with other people here in this room. And yet, the scriptures make it clear that when we arrive in heaven, something will have been, something so supernatural, so miraculous will have taken place that God, by his son, will have drawn us together in perfect harmony. We don't see that harmony just yet, but we know that it is coming. And the call that we have from Acts chapter 11 and 12, as we look at this, is that that is something towards which we ought to be striving. So let us consider biblical friendship this morning. Start off by saying what it is not. Biblical friendship, contrary to the friendships we see in the world, is not a social media friendship. Now for the older folks among us this morning, you're probably thinking... Amen, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm not on social media and I don't live my friendships that way. I ask you just to have grace and bear with us as I'm speaking primarily to the younger generation. Biblical friendship is not social media friendship. I can tell you right off the hop, I am on social media. I do in fact send text messages and Facebook messages and I get on Twitter and I tweet and I read articles on Feedly and I read blogs and I heart photos on Instagram like some of you do. I do all of those things. In fact, I can find myself at night if I have a hard time going to sleep on these social media accounts and just going on and on and on and killing all kinds of time. Hearting pictures, hearting pictures on Instagram and clicking like on posts on Facebook. And at the end of the day, I can do all of that and still have absolutely no idea what any of the rest of you are doing. We tell ourselves that we are able to draw closer together through social media, but I think if we're being honest, that's a lie that we're just telling ourselves. To have relationships with each other that are meaningful It does not require a great investment of time into social media or the internet. It does require a great investment of time into physically gathering together in each other's presence. Let me tell you what else biblical friendship is not. Biblical friendship is not what I'm going to refer to as a specialized friendship. If the social media friendship is willing to sacrifice intimacy, that is closeness, personal closeness, for the sake of convenience, being able to pop on your phone anywhere at any time, then the other illusion of friendship that the world around us portrays today is that what friendship ought to be is a specialized friendship. What I mean by this is that the content of our friendships with each other centers around things that we have in common. And I'm going to identify two of them. The first is what I'll refer to as the stage of life friendship. 
In this particular case, you simply surround yourself with people who are at the similar, at the same or similar point in life's journey as you are. So, for example, college students will hang out with other college students. Singles will hang out with other singles. Young marrieds will hang out with other young marrieds. Young families with young children will hang out with other young families with young children. Seniors will hang out with seniors. And all of this goes on and on and on. However, I would offer this caution. If you pursue these kinds of friendships to the exclusion of other friendships, then you're limiting the scope of what friendship can be, indeed what God has called it to be in Christ. When we consider the person of Jesus, he is a man, and we can put a a time on him in terms of how old he is. But if we consider more carefully the person of Christ, the scriptures refer to him as the ancient of days. He who was never born, who has no beginning and no end. If you're tracking carefully then, from the perspective of an infinitely old God, what he has done is he has come to earth and he has made friends with a bunch of 30-something guys who are way younger than him and, let's just be frank about it, spiritually immature compared to him. And yet he calls them his friends. What does that say for other relationships we have in this room from old to young? What does this say about the relationships that we have in this room from young to old? The second type of special relationship or special friendship that I want to point out to you this morning is what is known as the common interest relationship. You have the stage of life friendship and then you have the common interest friendship. Now, You know I love sports to a certain degree. And you may have heard that I have a thing for the Dallas Cowboys. I am not a hockey fan. And that means for many of you in this church, faithful Canucks are you all, I cannot talk about hockey with some of you. In your mercy, you have continued to be my friend. And I say thank you for that. That is a reflection of the gospel. Amen? Now, if you were really my friend, you'd, you'd cheer for the Dallas Cowboys. That's the Lord saying, stop it, Clay Camp. Yes, Lord. Sorry. <clears throat> Common interest relationships is where we basically section ourselves off according to a shared interest, a shared hobby, a common pastime, or it can even be reduced to an area of ministry that we have in common. There are common denominators of many friendships, and this is understandable. In fact, if we're involved in something and someone else is involved in that same thing, we have something around which we can talk, which is not wrong. But as a rule, it falls short of of what God has to offer us in friendship. And we shouldn't say that our relationships ought to be reduced to uh, common interest types of friendships. Biblical friendship is ultimately grounded in the greatest and most wonderful common denominator of all, which is a shared faith in Jesus Christ. Which means though I can cheer for the Cowboys and you can cheer for the Canucks, or I can groan for the Cowboys and you can groan for the Canucks, we all, all of us, have something in common that transcends all sports or any other type of hobby, and that is the conviction that we are sons and daughters of Christ, of the Lord, which makes us brothers and sisters with each other. 
So a healthy perspective on the true nature of biblical friendship will not restrict itself only to common interests or stage of life types of friendships. Last but not least, biblical friendship is not selfish friendship. The selfish friendship seeks others, not out of a spirit of mutuality, but purely for what can be gained, for the all-important me. Of the free friendships that I've, the free friendship substitutes that I've discussed here this morning, this is the most sinister. This is where I may try to befriend you because I believe that your friendship would give me status or it might raise my public profile in some way. It may be that I want a friend who feeds my desires to be flattered and will compliment me and tell me what it is that I want to hear. Or it may be that by befriending you, I gain some advantage. There's some quid pro quo. In business, all relationships tend in this direction. We make business partners and we network for the sake of advancing our business connections and the interests of our profits. It's normal then to see that in business. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the biblical ideal. As we consider all of these different things, we need to recognize that these are substitutes for biblical friendship. These are what the world portrays as the ideals of friendship. It's either stage of life, it's uh, social media convenient, or it is self-serving. And these are all substitutes for what we find here in the scriptures as, in terms of what biblical friendship is. And I caution you, if you indulge in the world's definitions of friendship, it's kind of like being drawn to the really good-looking pear in the bowl on the table that is ultimately made of wax or plastic. It is an imitation, but it will never nourish you. And if you chew on it, you will find quickly that it doesn't taste very well. This is all that the world really knows in terms of friendship. But because of Christ, we see something different here. We see here in Acts chapters 11 and 12, Jesus died for his people, and he's still acting on their behalf. And as he does so, there are others who are following Christ, who act for the sake of Christ on the behalf of of their friends. That's what we're seeing here. You ask the question, okay, pastor, biblical friendship is grounded in Christ. How do we do it? How do we actually have biblical friendships? And I want to just point your attention once again here to what we see in this particular passage. I'm reminded of the poem. I'm sure you've heard it before. I went out to find a friend but I couldn't find one there. I went out to be a friend, and then friends were everywhere. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 11. So often we recognize our loneliness and we say, you know what, um, no one talks to me, I don't have any friends, I'm a loner. Rather than being consumed with the fact that you're, you don't have any friends, Look at the scriptures, look at the example we find here in Acts chapter 11 and 12. At the tail end of chapter 12, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their, notice this word, 
their service. Their service. Now, back in chapter 11, the brothers in Antioch said, we got to do something for these guys in Jerusalem. we got to take care of them. They're getting ready to get into a famine, and we're not sure whether they're prepared. So they appoint Saul and Barnabas. They give them the money that they raised. They send them down. These guys went down, and it says when they had completed their service, then they returned with John Mark. But notice that word, service. As they're seeking to be friends, they're serving the church there in Jerusalem. They're coming from Antioch to serve Jerusalem. And I can't help but notice that this sounds an awful lot like some sort of a committee that's taking place. I mean, I don't want to wave the Baptist flag too proudly up here, but you'll see that the church gets together at the tail end of chapter 11, says we got to do something about it. That sounds like a business meeting taking place. They're deciding to help these guys down in Jerusalem, and then they'd have some sort of a nominating process that unfolds in which they tap Saul and Barnabas to be their guys that are going to go down and carry their money. We've seen business meeting, we've seen nominating committee, and we've seen subcommittee. Have we not? Now, you can sit there and sort of shake your head like, oh my goodness, here we go again, but this is exactly what we're seeing. This is the body coming together saying we're going to take care of our fellow sister church down in Jerusalem and this is how they're doing things. Business meeting, nominating committee, subcommittee. You say, how do we form biblical friendships? All too often the complaint is no one wants to be my friend but what we see happening here in Acts chapters 11 and 12 is that these guys weren't so much concerned with whether or not they had friends as they were concerned with getting together and being a friend to the Lord by serving their sister church. It meant that they took part in the business discussions of the church. How are we going to raise money to take care of these people? It meant they took prayerful part in the appointing of leaders to represent them and to carry out the work that needed to be done on all their behalf. And you know this is business because it clearly says at the tail end of chapter 12, when they had completed their service, when they had done their duty, when they had fulfilled their job, you think, okay, so this is all just a pure matter of business. No, absolutely not. Because when they had finished it, they returned to Antioch with another friend. John Mark is going with them. These guys have come down to care, to fulfill their business, to do their duty, to take care of the task at hand, to accomplish their service. And in the process They made another friend. And John Mark is a great friend. We're going to see more of him in the chapters to come. This is a guy that is going to not only go back to Antioch, he's going to go with them around the world in order to proclaim the name of Christ. This is no friend of convenience. This is a deep friendship that is taking place. You say, what should I do then to make friends And I tell you that in Christ, you have the opportunity to serve, to be a friend to others. The opportunities that we're taking advantage of here in the first century are the exact same opportunities that we have today to serve, to be a friend, to help one another. The way that they did it in this day and age is not all that different from the way that we do it today. They went to business meetings. They considered how to work together. They got together in committees. They partnered. They teamed. They collaborated. They did it for the sake of blessing others. And we see that very clearly here in Acts chapter 11 and 12. Which means that if 
you are here today and you're recognizing, I am lacking Christian friends. I feel as though I am not drawing closer to the Lord. I feel as though my walk with the Lord has kind of gotten dry or stale. It's not as invigorating. It's not as refreshing as it used to be. My question is, what are you doing to be a friend to the Lord? Because there's no doubt he's been a friend to you. That's a question you have to ask yourself. Yesterday, we went to the Sunny Bray business meeting as delegates, having been duly appointed by our church at the AGM, well, the AGM in the most recent business meeting. And we went, and there was business to be conducted. They give you that that 25-page Excel spreadsheet with like all these numbers and figures on it and all this kind of financial stuff. And I'm no accountant, you know this, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I can't do 25 pages of spreadsheet. Let me, I'm just going to be frank about my limitations, okay? But I was appointed to go and to consider the business. And I went with Tyler and Allison Walkton and John and Dale Dykstra and Pastor Ryan. And we listened to the reports and we voted up and voted down things as we saw fit at the time. But do you know what we did while we were there? We laughed. We told jokes. We talked about different events that were happening there at Sunny Bray, different events that were taking place here at First Baptist Church. We listened to what our fellow delegates from sister churches had to say about what was going on in their churches. Afterwards, we had lunch, and we sat down to a meal together, and we dialogued. I made friends with several people from sister churches I had never met before. And it was wonderful. It was a great time. Yes, there was a 25-page spreadsheet of numbers. And just like you, I cringe to read some of that stuff sometimes. But numbers matter. I heard an expression yesterday from Tim Paquette that stuck with me and has resonated in my heart. We look at the spreadsheets and we think, oh my goodness, there's so much going on here. Made a really great statement. The overall picture of this is the more dollar figures on this spreadsheet means the more money we are sending forth into ministry. If we are a friend to the Lord and if we care about the things he cares about, then that means we have to address the spreadsheet. But having done so, when we return back here, we come back once again with friends. Sitting there eating lunch with Tyler and, uh, and John and Dale, we laughed, we told stories. Ty- they, they have cinnamon buns afterwards. And, and both Tyler and I are trying to like, you know, live clean and not eat that kind of stuff. And so we joked about how the Lord, how Satan was tempting us and winning because we ate like three or four cinnamon buns each. And it was great. It was a great time of conversation and fellowship. And we were going to come home, and um, there was a bad car wreck on, on the highway just outside of Chase. And Ryan had, had gone, and Pastor Ryan had gone, and he texted back and said, oh, the road is closed. Don't leave. And so we just sat there for a good two hours afterwards and just fellowship, waiting for the road to open. I consider that a gift from the Lord. For us just to be able to sit and visit 
Ordinarily, I'm sure we'd all feel rushed, but we felt no sense to rush yesterday. The Lord freed us from all of that. And we really had the time to enjoy each other's company. Not just us, but Dallas Barnhart Vale. Kristen Renfrew from Dallas Barnhart Vale came over and joined our table, and we talked for a long time. Others sat there, Mark Purdy. It was a wonderful time of fellowship. When we look at the Christian life, we think that the spiritual disciplines are individualistic. That we get alone with the Lord in the closet, we read our Bible, we pray, we go through all of these motions, and somehow we've lost sight of the reality that all of this is intended to draw us closer to the Lord. People ask quite often, how do I improve my quiet time? How do I become more pious? But they never seem to ask the question, how do I become more righteous? And the reality is is that our walk with the Lord is intended to produce in us godliness. Piety is not an end unto itself. It is intended to draw us closer in friendship with God. When you look at this passage, you see very ordinary things happening on the front end and on the back end. Things that happen today. Business meeting, nominating committee, subcommittee, people traveling to carry funds, to be delegates, to to serve another group. Those are things that still happen today. Those are the bookends. But the center of the passage is that God actively steps in and miraculously delivers his people and judges those who stand in opposition to it. What we see in this text is that it is on the front end and on the back end, very ordinary, very mundane, everyday humdrum things that Christians do in order to be righteous, in order to serve the Lord, in order to draw closer to each other as friends. It is in the midst of those humdrum ordinary things that suddenly God breaks in and does something miraculous. I cannot tell you how many times I have longed, longed to be the guy that preaches to five, ten thousand people, to be the next Billy Graham that just preaches and revival breaks out and wonderful things happen. Never in my life have I ever thought to myself, I can actually grow closer to the Lord by making sure the photocopier downstairs is in proper working order. And what I find is that God, in his mercy to me, has never given me the opportunity to preach to the 10,000 or to be the instrument that launches revival, but in his mercy to me, he has very often broken the printer downstairs, and I have had the privilege of sitting there alongside Mike Wells, from the Rico printing, the tried and true printing company, and we have made friends over a broken photocopier. Whereas if I were to preach to a room of 10,000 people, though the Lord may have broken out in revival, I would for sure, guaranteed, walk away from that experience not really having made one close friend. I want you to stop and consider and reflect your walk with Christ. 
Is he something that you, is he someone that you become disappointed in because he doesn't give you the opportunities that you want to have that you think will make you happy and fulfilled? Do you find yourself time and again in an office that looks very much like Tierra's office downstairs? Doing things that you think time and again are unsatisfying and unfulfilling? Do you long and dream to be used of God in great and miraculous ways? Well, I'm here to tell you, you're doing too much of the talking and too much of the dreaming. And you need to focus on what the Lord has put right in front of you and find friendship and contentment with him there. And it's when you do that that you'll see him break in and do something supernatural. Walking with the Lord, the spiritual disciplines look very, very much more like Tierra's office downstairs than the grand revivals of Billy Graham across the 20th century. Church, I encourage you, be faithful to the Lord right where he has put you, which means serving one another right where you are, loving one another right where you are, and then notice when the supernatural takes place. Bow with me in prayer.